Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the latest Shiny podcast. This is Rob Hirschfeld, your host, uh, today doing it without Stephen, who I, I suspect is nursing a cricket injury, uh, although he will deny that. And um, today we have uh, a great guest for you, somebody who I really respect in the industry um, and one of the people who tilts at the IPv6 windmill, which I appreciate, Ed Horley, who's a co-founder of Hexabuild. Uh, and just a really great person to know in the industry. Ed, hello, and welcome to the show. Oh, thanks. <laughs> thanks so much for having me on. You, you didn't get my real title, which is the crazy IPv6 dudes. <laughs> so. I, and, uh, you know, I think it's implied. If you're an IPv6 person, that includes the adjective crazy. Right, right. Um, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, you're right in that, in, in, in that, in that classification with me then. <laughs> So the uh, I mean I I think anytime we we say IPv6 you know we're gonna get a degree of eye roll or IP roll uh, boy I gotta resist that one um, <laughs> the just because you know a couple of years ago we we heard about the IPv4 uh, you know end of time crisis um, what happened yeah the sky is following Every, everything else is gonna end uh, we'll, we'll have, the internet will stop will cease to function as we know it. <laughs> It was going to be worse than Y two K, and then and then it just like Y two K, it didn't it didn't happen yet, right? Um, so I, you know we can't start an IPv six uh, talk without that, and 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 for listeners, if if we're not just going to talk about IPv six, <laughs> um, but I do want to I, I do want to throw a flavor of IPv six in because I I think that especially for people who like our edge discussions. Uh, you can't really separate those things, and so we need to we need to understand it. And so Ed's going to bring a whole other flavor to our normal conversation. So, so where's the crisis? Where did the crisis go? <laughs> well, I, I don't know if there was ever really a crisis. Uh, much as much as much to the uh, chagrin of many many people who are starting off or around the IPv6 story. I think it was much more. It's it's much more around the journey about what IPv4 did. Which was really all about, you know, you making use of address conservation with things like network address translation, right, and port address translation, and then and then the fact that we did some good things in in the backbone of the internet in terms of sort of disaggregating, uh, sort of the stiff routing policies that we had before, and uh, just allowing a little bit more flexibility in terms of what we were allocating out, and and just uh, doing a better job overall of just helping to conserve what we already had. So, uh, so I guess the the upside is is that we did such a fantastic job there that we really sort of slowed the need for 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 the sort of the rapid adoption of IPv6 that everyone was predicting, because we we put mitigation engineering effort in, but we're paying the technical debt for those engineering efforts now. So I guess that that brings it back around, which is, hey, we're we're, we're paying the technical debt around latency that network address translation introduces the the multiple layers of that that cause you know breakage for applications. How much how much uh, sort of technical debt we had to pay in terms of getting all that state information all over the place and coming up with methods to be able to keep that state. So there's, there's a lot of things that we're paying for now that we didn't pay for early on and uh, they're starting to add up. So I'd say those are the biggest things. Uh, just, you know, current state of adoption is actually quite healthy and uh, most people are really shocked and surprised to hear some of the stats uh, of sort of what's going on today. So can, what, what are the stats? How deep, how deep have we gone? Oh yeah, so let's talk about that really quick. I, I, let's talk for the U.S. because those are the numbers I know really well. 
Um, yeah, and then oh, and, and, and non-US is, is much, much higher is my understanding, right? They well, yeah, really. The, yeah, like, exactly. Right. I mean, that's so in the US side, uh, let's talk the mobile mobile providers, which are, you know, they don't have anything to sell unless they can get you on the internet, right? Because <laughs> we mainly consume data right now. We don't spend a lot of time doing voice calls anymore. Um, so, you know, T-Mobile, I think it's like at 96, 97% IPv6. If you're on an iPhone on the T-Mobile network, you're V6 only. So there's some really interesting things about that. Sprint, I think, is well north of 85% or something like that. And uh, Verizon and, and AT&T are in a similar situation. They're, they're well north of 75 to 80%. So that means that if you're on a mobile handset, you're more than likely doing IPv6. And the great news is that all the content providers, the big ones anyway, are all on V6 because they realize this is going to be a big issue for the mobile providers. They just wanted native transport. So, you know, you want to go to YouTube, you want to go to... Google for G Suite, you want to go to Microsoft Office, you want to go to, you know, Netflix, uh, you know, Facebook, all those things are all V6 native. So you're just going to get native end to end V6 transport just doesn't happen over, over V4 anymore. So for the US, that's probably a big portion. The cloud providers, you know, AWS is done. Uh, Azure is, is just released all their stuff out on, uh, on beta. You just have to ask to join, but they've got their V6 set up and support uh, operational. Um, all the CDNs, content delivery networks are available. And the residential providers, uh, Comcast is well north of 70% uh, IPv6. So that means if you're running Com Comcast Xfinity, you're seeing all the Xfinity Wi-Fi stuff and you join that, you're more than likely getting v6 as, as part of your experience there. And so that means that the folks that are left over are really the enterprises, right? They're the ones that are, that are still sitting around and waiting. Um, uh, and we can talk a little bit about them separately. On the, on the big picture basis, you know, um, the really interesting one to watch is India. Uh, India has just done a tremendous job in the last uh, two years, really, of moving from something less than 10% to in some, some, depending on whose numbers you want to look at, you know, anywhere between 50 to 60% adoption which is just a massive adoption number. That's a huge jump. Yeah. yeah, and it's mainly due to a couple of mobile providers over there. They literally were entering the market as the first time. They have no V4 to hand out, so they can only hand out V6. And as a result, they, you know, and they were super aggressively priced. And guess what? They're off to the races. They were able to provide that service and they were able to do that uh, very cost effectively. And they were able to turn India around in literally two years moving from very low percentages all the way up to, huge adoption numbers. And when you account for the population of India, um, they've already exceeded the population of the United States for the number of people that are on, that are on uh, the IPv6 internet. Because in the wow. US, we're, we're above, we're, you know, we're above 50% threshold um, for the US specifically. Uh, if you look at like Facebook's numbers, LinkedIn's numbers, Google's numbers, et cetera, um, you know, we're 50, 55%. But when you only have 330 million people, it's 165, 170 million people that might be on IPv6. When you take 1.3 billion, <laughs> I don't know what India is at now, uh, people, and you put it at 60%, <laughs> it's, it's a really big number. Well, this, this to me is the thing that, that we have a lot of trouble visualizing. And actually, it's the same problem I think that IPv6 has, is because the law of big numbers is so powerful in this case, right? Yeah. You just name the top six properties for internet traffic and they had a huge incentive to go straight IPv6 so they avoided the latency and overhead of, of translation. And once you did that, you know, basically all but the noise, you know, all but the noise of, of internet traffic is now native V6. 
Um, and then the natural behavior of people using their phones, uh, switch, you know, sort of switch the rest of it. Exactly. This is, this is like the big revolution that that nobody ever heard was happening. Just (laughs) quietly, we, we dual protocoled our way into success. Well, and that and that's the quiet success story of V6. That's the funny part about it is that V6 is one of those things that you, if we're doing it well, you never know. <laughs> you never notice. It's not like you're going to get some big banner across your computer that says, hey, "Congratulations, you're up on V6 now." I mean, it's just not. It's not there. It's built into all the all the operating systems. They did they did this work a long time ago uh, for porting and support, and uh, they did all the right things with happy eyeballs and making sure that V6 was preferred over V4. So as as all these folks turn services up, it just things just naturally switch. I think one of the other things that people forget is that every session that happens over V6 means that a session did not happen over V4. And so as the curve starts to break, as it is now above that fifty percent threshold mark you're going to see actually a cascading where more and more traffic will occur over V6 simply because it is preferred and it's on by default. But it also means that on scaling for the backbone of the internet, you're going to see less and less V6, uh, V4 traffic uh, just because of that natural inversion of the fact that every V6, successful V6 transport means that no V4 had to happen at all. And I, I think this is the part, the subtle part that the enterprises miss. They're like, we got plenty of V4. We know we got a you know, everyone uses old school terminology, right? We got a class B way back in the day. And, and I'm like, okay, that's- Learn your ciders, everybody, please. Right, Learn yeah, ciders. yeah, that's, I said, that's great. You have a slash 16. Um, but, right, that it's, you know, they use their, their older terminology around that. But yeah, they have, they, they consider that they have plenty of address space. Why in the world would you have to do V6? It's, it doesn't make any sense. But I have to point out to them that the problem isn't them. It's the fact that they were early enough to join the internet that they- they basically got a, a large allocation and didn't have to fight for it. But the rest of the world isn't in that situation. And a great example is India exactly. Like the India mobile service providers, they couldn't get any V4. So they're not going to participate in the V4 internet in that way. And so if you're trying to, maybe you're a higher education institution and you're like, hey, I don't have to worry about that. I'm going to exist on the V4 internet just fine. Well, if you're interested in attracting talent, talented students, uh, researchers, folks to do fellowships uh, and anyone else in India and they're on their mobile device and you don't have any V6, you're not exactly providing the best experience for them to find you, to interact with you, you know, all those other things. So even though you may think that you've got plenty of V4, if you want a native conversation with those folks, you really should get at a bare minimum, your internet edge turned up with IPv6 because that allows that sort of native end-to-end transport and it puts you on what I like, quick euphemism, but the entire internet, not just the V4 internet, but not just right, which is, which right. is a, a sort of going to become the US ghetto from that perspective. Yeah, in some ways, like uh, Western Europe and US and US, yeah, as a market, it'll be the it'll be the IPv4 ghetto. We'll get we'll we'll pay all the penalty. We we take all the technical debt because we're not moving forward. And I consider that for the US a big risk because that means we potentially will have a loss in innovation, um, not investing in the right areas. We don't have as much resources to hand out. So we're we're going to be running around trying to do resource allocation management of all these V4 when everyone else is just like, forget that. We don't even have to deal with that. We just hand you a massive block of V6 and just go. So you don't it's have to worry about a technical, it. it becomes a technical debt problem. Exactly. And, and so we're, we're, we're saying, and, and anybody who's doing data center infrastructure, and I, I, we'll, we'll turn this to the edge in a second, that, that technical debt translates into, you're, you're basically building legacy systems on day one 
and what you might think of as greenfield is still going to be limited. And I, I want to actually, I want to flip it in a second and talk through the benefits because you know it. You know, we're talking we're talking about IPv6 native, and then going into edge. But I'm going to parking lot that for a second. What happens to my 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 four my my, my three dot addresses? Am I am I just going to have to give up typing? You know, going to cloud <laughs> provider, getting a machine, and and having a you know four octet address and yeah, I mean it's so yeah, like Amazon, you know, fully supports running V6 inside of a VPC, and you can run that also for for just cloud enabling if you're using, you know. CloudFront and you're using uh, Route 53, you can turn all those services up and do it with V6 and do it with global unicast addresses that uh, AWS provides you. Mm -hmm. I imagine they'll eventually get around and bring your own addressing too, because why not? I mean, it's so- oh, for V6. Yeah, the address so you could actually control the addressing and you could say, hey, I'm bringing up new machines. Here's the addressing that I'm used to using. You could pre-populate your DNS. But it, exactly. if I'm using services that have DNS entries, right? The DNS is going to do the right thing and I'm going to get natively routed yeah, assuming you have a quad A and an A record. I mean, I, I I don't know. It's always funny when people say, like, I remember my V4. And I'm like, at what point in any operational network is not having functional DNS acceptable? Like, like I, I'm not aware of anyone who has an operational network who would be like, host name resolution, I, that should be like the number one thing that has to work and has to be highly available. I can't imagine running a network, a modern network today, and and saying like, well, we're just going to remember IP addresses and... Oh, wait, wait, wait until we get into a conversation about what provisioning <laughs> networks are like. You were, you're going to cry in your beer. Yeah, well, but, I mean, um, it's we'll so provisioning, <laughs> yeah, provisioning networks may fit in a, in a small corner case, but I would, I would argue that, you know, uh, the internet as we know it today would not function if we did not have working DNS. So anyone who wants to argue that you can build something at scale, the, and yeah. I would argue the internet is that thing at scale, and then claim that you don't need DNS, I'd be like... Yeah, cite off to me really quickly. You may know Google's DNS name, you know, you know, open, you know, resolver. publicly available name resolver, but I guarantee you, you don't know the address of what Google.com is. <laughs> right? that is and, and you shouldn't know because frankly, the way the internet works nowadays with dynamic DNS and load, load routing and all sorts of things is it's antithetical for you to exactly. use addresses. You're actually breaking the internet when you're coding an address, unless you're exactly. a, de a developer doing, you know, spinning up a machine and trying to get to a machine. Uh, names are names are actually much more important than they were a couple of years ago when things were were sort of statically bound. That's not how things go today. There's georeferencing, and and we've had some shows where we talk about globally routing traffic and things like exactly. that. Yeah. So you hit you hit the nail on the head. It's very hard to build a modern uh, a modern uh, application and not want to have geolocation services associated with it. And as we migrate, maybe this is a good you know tipping point to talk about edge. Yeah. As we move to edge, this becomes incredibly important because you need to have the right sort of capabilities to move the services as close to the end users if that's your goal with your edge deployment, or have the right namespaces associated with those geolocations in order for them to understand that they are proximate to each other and can therefore share services. And, well, that uh, makes sense, right? If I'm if I'm in a natting situation, I might have a hundred edge sites all with the same IP ranges, mm -hmm. um, and and then I've got to do translation. I've got to get, figure out where things are. It becomes really confusing. If if I'm using IPv6, every entity in that infrastructure has a resolvable IP address. And it's globally I mean, we're unique. We're still going to use names, but right. yeah, globally unique. But it makes it so much more straightforward if you can say this thing in my 
you know, distributed environment, that includes sensors, mm -hmm. has a unique address. Um, that, I, that I can geolocate tag, that I can, that I can understand where it exists within my network. So I have, I have telemetry data that's just coming, coming to me just based off the address and how it participates. And I don't have to worry about state uh, connecting to the device. I don't have to worry about how I'm actually routing to it and whether it's going through multiple layers of NAT in order to determine what it is. You know, all the obfuscation that we do around IPv4 because of the fact that we have to support, you know, NAT upon NAT upon NAT just removes a lot of, of useful information, right? And so we get a lot better, I consider better metadata about what, what's actually going on um, for those edge resources. Doesn't, doesn't that open me up from a security perspective though, that, you know, I could go get an address and then talk to that sensor and just, you know, have well, I now made it more exposed? Well, so everyone always seems to munge together stateful packet inspection and, and NAT because often it's done on the same device and it's often done in, the, in, in conjunction with each other. You still need a stateful stateful firewall, right? You still need protections out there. Just because you're using a global unicast address doesn't, doesn't mean that you would just stick your resources raw on the internet. You wouldn't do that with V4, even if you had the addresses, right? <laughs> um, so, wait, wait, wait. You haven't seen cloud practice lately, have you? <laughs> uh, well, I, I would still argue that uh, there's still good base level hygiene that AWS, Azure, and everyone else recommends as a best practice. And they right. don't, they, they tell you, you know, hey, use you know, use security groups, uh, make use of network access control lists, make use of, you know, good third party, you're no, you're third party no, internal. No more vulnerable on a V4 than a V6 if you haven't, if you haven't closed the front door. Exactly. Yeah. It I mean, it's easier to do an IP swing sweep of, an, of the V4 space for Amazon though. Oh yeah. I mean, uh, good luck ever, ever even doing discovery for host devices on a slash 64, which is what you would use in, in, in V6 just for a single subnet or a single VLAN. I mean, it's, it's crazy. I mean, you, you're, you know, take the existing internet address space in V4, square it and stick it in a single subnet. <laughs> good luck scanning that. I mean, it's several lifetimes, if, if not more. I mean, there's shortcuts that you can do and there's, there's some logical assumptions you can make that actually make it, you know, slightly feasible to do, but Either way, I mean, you know, at that point, it's, it becomes a math why bother problem. You're going to get a lot better information snooping around in DNS than you're going to be trying to scan networks. So, so when somebody thinks about software-defined networking in V6, is it different? Should they, should they, are there constructs or, I mean, because everybody should be aware, V6 has a different set of services stacks and you do need some different command line tools to talk to V6. They're, 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 equivalent but you know slightly subtle differences enough yeah enough yeah. to drive you bananas right <laughs> enough, yeah there's it's enough that it, you're either in a v6 world or you're in a v4 world it's 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 really hard to straddle but do the constructs when we when we're used to talking about sdns or being up bringing a vpn in or something like that or are those you know things that we should be and, and network function virtualization is uh we just did a show uh with calsoft about networks network function virtualization are those concepts still applicable in v6 or do we yeah, get it, something do we do yeah the, do no, they, i mean i don't okay. think any of those concepts really care about what protocol was so whatever comes after ipv6 the that same protocol is going to have the same sort of capabilities around it from a networking basis i don't think there's any real construct difference around it i, I think the biggest thing is number one you don't have to deal with state for nap being located in, in, in specific areas within your network so you get mm -hmm. a lot more flexibility so your routing topology doesn't break 
um, because trying to, you know, part of the biggest problem for like mergers and acquisitions for big companies is like, oh, we got to go readdress that portion of the network or build this huge NAT firewall configuration in order to get the, or the overlapping RFC 1918 to speak to each other, or we have to waste a bunch of global IPv4 address space because it needs to be unique in order to be able to talk on our network. So you, get, you solve all those sort of related problems and you don't have to put that into, into your software to find, you know, widget in order to solve that particular issue. So you get a lot better, a lot better sort of end-to-end -end transport. And it also allows for asymmetrical routing uh, a lot easier uh, in terms of not having to be concerned about, you know, where the state or translation actually occurs within the network. So those are all big pluses oh, on the yeah, basic you've side. You've eliminated some choke points. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, I think the big one with that is, is, is just really about... Um, uh, for those that are doing, you know, multi-homing and, and internet pairing, you're not as concerned about forcing all your traffic through. You might be concerned from a firewall basis, right? You know, so if you're keeping state from a firewall basis, you might want to force traffic through a given a given firewall and back again because it's keeping state about a session for you. But in terms of just pure routing to get a packet from one end of the network to the other, um, you're not as concerned about that because you're not doing network address translation at the same time. And, and so you don't have to worry about that aspect, which means you can move the firewalls a heck of a lot closer to the source of the, of, of the thing you're trying to protect. And, uh, and because you don't need the NAT portion of it, you can just get that security tightly coupled with the app itself, which actually lends itself really well to things like Kubernetes and, and uh, being able to sort of adopt those frameworks for, for container you know, management orchestration. Uh, you, you're able to do that service insertion with, you know, if you're into Istio and Envoy and et cetera, et cetera, and <laughs> want to go that route, then you can do all of that, depending on how heavy an app you want to lift, right? So, but that makes a lot of sense. What you're, what, and and we've seen this trend, right? We want to containerize this this network function, and if you've said, all right, now I've decoupled that that big thing I had into a, you know, basically a, a single function instead of having three functions crammed together, then I've now made it you know, possible to say, all right, here is a, you know, a firewall function or a, a network inspection function that are, is next to my application. And that frees you up quite a bit. That, that means that each, each service in Kubernetes could actually have a firewall. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's one of the big pluses. I think that's one of the reasons they've been pushing pretty hard on, the, on sort of the Kubernetes side to get native V6 support built in the right way. And I, I actually consider it sort of interesting if I... If I my druthers. If anyone's listening has any opinion about this, I'd, I'd love to hear. But I actually think uh, all of those services should just go v6 native and push a translation service for v4 out to the edge, something like NAT64, DNS64 out all the way to the edge. And the reason why is because if you need to make it available v4, that's a concentrated sort of like service block that you can build to allow the v4 and v6 resources to talk back and forth to each other. You can use, you know, you know, server load balancing six to four and server load balancing four to six. And those could just be little edge services and Kubernetes itself and the, and the container orchestration application services don't have to be, don't have to worry about that. And really this just becomes a namespace problem. And that's actually reasonably easy to solve for things like NAT64 and DNS64, right? And so that, that becomes a much better way to sort of scale up. And then you're not worrying about two protocols on the same cluster, right? Or the same set of pods and trying to do resolution between V4 and V6 for your apps and for the app stack that you deliver. It's like, why do you even want to deal with that? I don't know why you would want to introduce that sort of nightmare for yourself. Yeah, I mean, what, what you're describing, I want to decompose a little bit because there's an element where I, Kubernetes and container orchestration in general should have been V6 from day one. 
It, it yeah. have, every container that ever gets spun up in a cluster could have had a unique address, V6 address, and, and never had to deal with uh, some of the vagaries of Docker networking that are complicated by the fact that it's assigning IP addresses out of the same pools on this on different servers. I mean, well, didn't that, it, doesn't that make it that didn't that make the whole Kubernetes thing harder? The fact that Docker was really a V4 networking layer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we can go in some history uh, there. All right, we won't but, cry on our beer on that. Yeah, one. no, no. I mean, it's, but it's a good point. I think let's solve the upside. Let's talk about the upside with V6. Because with v, with v4 maybe, maybe maybe selling people on like hey what could have been is not really very interesting but I think yeah. the upside is really interesting and that's let's let's talk about a slash 64 is going to be the standard you know v6 um, uh, prefix that we would assign uh, maybe a maybe a docker host and let's let's do some crazy math um, let's assume we want to do 10 million addresses a second so we have an app that spins up 10 million 10 million it needs 10 million addresses a second and it needs a unique one. So the next second, it's going to spin up another 10 million. I don't even know how you would be able to write this much V4. data. Yeah, that's right. But, but yeah. never mind the V4 thing. I don't even know how you would hold that many sessions over. <laughs> but 10 million a second and with a, and you just, you'll never reuse an address ever again. So you just use it once for that one second and then it's gone. Which makes it much simpler to actually track containers over uh, in a log life cycle. Yeah, yeah, thing. exactly. A very yeah. Good thing. Right, which is a good thing. So, but let's just say, we're, and everyone would be like, that's insane. You're completely wasteful. Well, that's the whole point of this exercise. Um, so, how long would it take you to actually, you know, I'll give you a clue. How many years would it actually take you to use your slash 64 um, to, you know, to burn through all the addresses that you could potentially have for just that, you know, single single host this is the large numbers here are just crazy right I've heard yeah so, six is being able to address every blade of grass yeah in the history so, of the planet right it's you're so talking, if, what decades yeah so if if, if 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 the listeners want to go home and do the math go ahead i'll, I'll give you a shortcut it's about fifty-eight thousand years so, <laughs> so <laughs> yeah so so if you if you do the math and you play around with it and then i ask because this comes up in a lot of classes that i teach around ipv6 you know do training and education on v6 and and it's really funny because people are like, oh, well, you know, eventually this is going to happen. I'm like, yeah, eventually it is. I said, how many of you think your data center is going to be in the same location in 100 years from now? Right. And, you know, a few folks that just want to be contrarian, throw their hands up and say, like, oh, we'll have our data center there in 100 years. And I'm like, it's pretty unlikely you have it there in 100 years. I go, how many of you think you're going to have it here in 1,000 years? I go, how many of you think you're actually going to live in a city that's still in the same geographic location? Like, do you think San Francisco is still going to be San Francisco in 3,000 or 5,000 years from now? Yeah. And people start to scratch their head. I go, like, you know, entire, you know, we could, we could have. You're getting, you're getting to the dawn of the industrial, before the dawn of the industrial revolution. Exactly. Yes. And I think people forget that. They forget, you know, what a thousand years actually really means. I'm talking 58,000 years like from a pragmatic practical standpoint, it is an unlimited resource. You will never, you will, you will go deploy a net new network hundreds of times over before you ever consume all of the V6 addresses in a slash 64 burning it up that way. And you're going to have 65,536 slash 64s available in a single 48 that would be a site topology that you would give a data center. I, and, and I want to, I want to put a, a point on this because I think this is really significant because a lot of us aren't used to thinking of addresses as disposable. Um, but we're getting into an age with CICD and immutable deployments and things like that. And if you're doing an immutable deployment and that immutable deployment can have a unique 
identity and unique address per instance you deploy, now you have a degree of traceability where you're really getting the benefit of immutability. You're like, oh, not only did I deploy this image, I gave it a unique address so that I actually had some real information about it. Well, um, yeah, it's I powerful. mean, yeah, I completely agree. What's crazy is that um, if you think of it this way, if you were like, um, I'll just give an example. It's not, maybe it's not realistic, but I'll give you an example, like a financial institution, you could literally say every transaction that's gonna occur for a payment system I want you to use a unique address for that transaction and then never reuse that address again. And therefore I could tie my transaction to a unique, global unique V6 address and I can then look that up in all of the logging and routing information in my backbone that I'm, that I'm you know, retaining data on. And I know it's only unique for that one point in time, for that one transaction, and that is it. And so I can go for audit and for you know, lawful intercept and for like all that stuff, it becomes insanely easy to go get all the requisite data and it's only for that one payment process that single I, transaction I, and i want to i want to i want to you know pre presuppose the contrarian because you know we generate uh globally unique ids what i would say guids other people have different pronunciations youtube control people out there um but you know sure you could embed a guid into that transactions and get this log behavior but, but in this case, you actually, not only do you know that, that that thing was tied to that address, you actually know that the traffic went there. Exactly. It's a double win, because you, mm -hmm. you actually have some guarantees with, with the routing of the traffic. It's not just, oh, this was a unique container or a unique transaction. You're like, and the traffic went there because they're the same thing. It's, yeah. it's hugely yeah. powerful. Huge. Yeah, it, it becomes very unique because it, it not only is it uh, it's, it's exposing it's got uh, the metadata as part of the address itself, but you, you because you've tied it to that specific container instance, you actually know you could tie multiple unique characteristics to it. Now, granted, there there are plenty of other. I mean, V six just becomes one of many global unique identifiers as part of the overall process. I don't think it's the you know end all be all. I mean, many, many people will probably argue it, it makes more sense to have some sort of certificate chain uh, involved in the process. And then this just becomes an attachment to that certificate chain. But either way, I, mean, I think it's still powerful because one of the limitations we deal with today is this NAT-PAT configuration for many Kubernetes, you know, it's sort of like, hey, we want to have layer three. We want to have these things publicly exposed. We want to have this routability we want to have these natural protection firewalls and we want to know who we're talking to and how to expose that service. But then we have to deal with hiding behind this address and providing a port number and that can get reused and that's not globally unique. And was it at this point in time versus that point in time? And I have to, you know, aggregate log information. There's, there's all these conditions that go on top of getting the same useful information. If you just went with V6, you wouldn't have to worry about. Well, and this, I, I think, you know, you're bringing together something that we hear a lot with the edge, but I don't feel like has very good answers today, which is if I have a thousand or 10,000 sites running approximately the same workloads and I don't have a way to actually, you know, know that containers running in all these different sites are, you know, logged, unique, identifiable, um, that problem becomes much, much harder. The, the, the management of all those things becomes harder. And so just, you know, getting a good IPv6 strategy as you build an edge infrastructure and say, all right, our edge sites, they probably already have to be v6 only because they're going to be in distributed telco 
you know, edge network environments. Yeah, 5G, 5G, V6 is just part of the 5G standard. So, yeah. And so the idea that you would throw a NAT between the radio and the infrastructure doesn't make any sense. And then throw another NAT between the infrastructure and the outbound doesn't make any sense. You know, I think, you know, we haven't had a conversation yet where somebody did what you're doing, which is saying, look, we got to figure out how to get this networking approach, this networking topology into the fundamental designs. Um, right. Uh, yeah. And it, and Kubernetes there you go. There's my contribution to the there. community. <laughs> That's awesome. No, this is, I, so when, one of the things I love us doing and you're, you're helping us with this cause is, is decomposing edge, which is a marketing thing more than anything else right now into actual technical problems that are solvable. Mm-hmm. And, and so that, we need that. That's how we, that's how we're going to actually build these infrastructures. Um, yeah. I, I think it's a, it's a, it's a very unique opportunity point in time opportunity for, for V6 to sort of explode onto the scene um, in, in terms of becoming um, a, a much more ubiquitous way to, to allow uh, sort of, you know, you, you're not constrained in the same fashion as you were with V4 in terms of dealing with some of the network related issues. Your routing is much cleaner, you, you know, and, and transport, you don't care whether you're going over the 5G or over the backhaul because your address is going to be the same. So there's, there's, there's a lot of advantages just with, with doing it that way. And then obviously the scale side, you know, anyone who wants to argue that V6 doesn't address scale related problems just hasn't spent enough time looking at the large, uh, you know, dealing with large numbers of math. Right. Um, it's, it's definitely solves all of those problems and more. So, so, so does that mean that, you know, as we're building these infrastructures, we better make sure we bring up the core V6 services, you know, DNS and uh, DHCP infrastructure. All, you know, yeah. That, are those are pieces that we need to make sure are in place. Yeah, those are great starting points. I mean, it, it, to your original sort of comment around, you know, provisioning, there are some challenges in the provisioning space that are that are unique to V6 and, and, and corner cases. And, and part of the reason they're unique is no one's really wanted to address them in the market. I mean, I think you and your project are, are probably some of the few and first that I knew of that were really trying to noodle on trying to fix that problem. I think also the folks over at LinkedIn have done a lot of work uh, sort of around this topic area because they're running V6 only and, and Facebook is obviously doing a, a tremendous amount of work there too. So it's going to take people at that scale to really sort of fix and help move the industry forward, right? Where they come back to, you know, whoever to Supermicro and say like, hey, we can't get your stuff to work on V6 to, you know, to do bare metal, bare metal boot provisioning like on IPv6. Can you help us out to get the right drivers and support and network support inside the device itself to make things happen? And that's a long, arduous process. It's not overnight, but... It's definitely uh, needed. I, it, you know, I, I will tell you that if if um, one vendor doesn't have it and the other vendor does, um, and that's the bottleneck between you know having a V6 only infrastructure, uh, money is a very powerful motivator for these vendors to fix it. Just like the operating system vendors dual stacked once they realized that you know big customers wouldn't be able to buy their things or tell handset providers, right? If handset providers didn't do V6, they couldn't mm-hmm. sell into markets. Yep. Um, yeah. Couldn't agree more. We just haven't made it easy enough um, uh, on, in, in the bare metal side of it. I, you know, I, I think we want to, and I, I'm still sad that Kubernetes um, still, you know, I, you, you, can you give me a, a thumbnail? We're, we're, we're out of time. And I know Steven's tapping on the desk saying, <laughs> uh, Rob, 
I, I, I let you well, run your own. Maybe, I, maybe I let we, you run the show without me and, and you start going 45 minutes again. But, so well, we could we could certainly park that and have that as another conversation. <laughs> so just just in general, are they you know V6 they definitely only cube? Yeah, yeah far, I mean it, they're they're an alpha. They're an alpha okay. for it, and uh, you know you can definitely get it up and working. Um, but it's you know it takes effort. Uh, Ask your just, vendor. Put pressure yeah. on them. It's yeah, that's really thing. what it's all. It's really what it's all about. Actually, the practical limitation for 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 why it's not being you know. It, it just needs to get tested and validated more. So more people just need to use it in order for it to move further along. So I say the biggest thing is start using it. So if you have the opportunity, stand it up, start using it. And if you have the opportunity, start, start deploying V6, you know, start, you know, it's, it's too late to be an early adopter. So get with the masses <laughs> and start, and start uh, figuring out your V6 deployment, I think is probably the, some, some good advice there. And you can certainly play around with the, some of the public cloud providers and, 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 and on-premise deployments are, are going to be, you know, something that you have probably more control over, but you can definitely do it up in Amazon if you want. So Ed, where do people get in touch with you? Uh, I'm on Twitter at E Horley, as E H O R L E Y. It's probably the best way to get a hold of me. I mean, you can look me up on LinkedIn if you want. And, but uh, I think probably most folks know me from, from Twitter. And uh, I also, well, I, I, I run my own podcast too. Yeah. Uh, with a couple of friends. Yeah. We're yeah. Happy, so we're happy for COVID co-hosting yeah it's uh so i do the i'm one of the co-hosts of the ipv6 buzz podcast over on the packet pushers uh, so if you're feel like listening to more crazy v6 stuff then uh wander on over and you can hear us musing we just had uh you know uh, some folks on from aaron and we've had you know tons of other guests uh coming on and off the show so it's it's good fun we just geek out talking v6 all the time sort of similar to what we did here but you know, um, just uh, on the angle of sort of promotion and telling people what's going on and sort of hopefully they get some good, useful technical content out of it. And if they want some training, Hexabuild is the right Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, in my, in my practical life, uh, yeah. So training, education, and professional service consulting. So all the three founders for Hexabuild were all published IPv6 book authors and all worked on task force and publicly speak and do all that sort of stuff and got, I don't know, 15, 20 years each of working on IPv6. So if, if, if we've had any pain and discovery of doing something wrong, we, we can tell you about it. <laughs> I, and I, I will, I will vouch, you know, Ed just makes my head explode with, with IPv6 and, and how much you really want to know to start the process, especially if you're, you know, doing a big migration, uh, a little bit of knowledge goes a long way. So yeah, don't, definitely. Well, thanks so much. For, yeah. Thanks so much for having me on the show, man. This is awesome. Ed, you're a great guest. Just a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, take care.